0: Our sermon text today is coming out of Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 17. And if you find it, would you please stand for the reading of the word. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, he saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. A full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. As the fig tree shed its winter fruit, when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the king of the earth, and the great one, and the general, and the rich and the powerful, and every one slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Call unto the mountains and rock, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand?
1: Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thank, thankful again this morning, uh, Lord, that you would give us uh, this opportunity again to gather in your name, uh, to come together as a body. And, and participate in corporate worship and Bible study. And Lord, as always, we are looking to you uh, for a blessing, Lord, that you, that you uh, enable us to do all that we do here for your honor and glory. Lord, we want to uh, take your word seriously, uh, so Father, we pray, open up our minds that we may uh, receive your truth yes. so that everybody in this room may be affected by it in the in the right way, in the good way, that we would come into submission to your truth, come into submission to you as King and Lord. Lord, be honored, here we pray. Grant that your word may be proclaimed with clarity and with accuracy. And again, open all of our ears to hear so that we are changed by it. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen, amen. And be seated. So I start with a question this morning that is uh, relevant to the the passage that we're looking at, and it's just simply this: Are you ready for the judgment day? Are you ready for the judgment day? <laughs> Show you something interesting here in the in the text uh, as as we're looking at it. Um, the saints that. Uh, Are are set before us here in this passage are not only ready for it, they're longing for it. So that would be another good question, right? Are, Are you longing for, am I longing for the day of judgment? When Christ comes in glory and everyone stands before Him to give an account. Do we look at that with dread? You know, when we think about it. Or do we Look at it with longing. We think about it with longing. Paul said uh, when he addressed the Athenians um, at Mars Hill, he said God has appointed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. So that day is surely coming, and he's going to do it, Paul said, uh, by a man that he has appointed. And, of course, that man is... Jesus Christ, and God has given assurance of that by raising him, that is Jesus, from the dead. Now, I want to consider a couple things before we dive into the text here, and we're going to, we're going to uh, try to make good time here, Lord willing, I, I want to, uh, my plan is to deal with both uh, the, the uh, fifth and sixth seal here, all of what David just read, so... Um, if we don't make it to the sixth seal for some reason, then we'll we'll deal with that later, Lord willing. But we're going to try to do it. Um, but just a couple of things to kind of uh, uh, get us thinking in this way here. Um, there is created within us uh, an innate desire for justice. That's hardwired in us. God put that in us. Now, I know that may be... Hard to believe when you look at all of the evil that goes on in the world, but but think of it this way: you know, you see events like we've seen over the past few months, um, some of the things that have been going on in the news, and boy, there are way too many to name. But look look at the at the protests for one, and one, one word that you will see repeatedly um, is a, is justice. It's a, you know they're, they're a call for justice because they feel that someone has been wronged and they want it made. Right Now, we we may, uh, in those particular circumstances, we may disagree with them or we may agree with them. But either way, um, we should know that what they want, what people want on both sides, presumably, is justice. You think about the atrocities that are going on in places like Iraq and Syria. And I was just reading about some more this morning. Um, Another 25 people executed in northern Iraq. Uh, Yazidis. Um, uh, uh, my understanding is they're a sect of of Islam, but but uh, ISIS views them as uh, apostate. So they've been uh, um, harassing them and and torturing them and killing them just just the same way they have pretty much the way that they have Christians. So they executed 25 more and people hear that and you, and you, you, you have a, 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 a desire for justice because you, we recognize, just about anybody recognizes, recognizes those, those things as injustices, right? So that's hardwired into us. And if you don't believe it, um, you know, I know some people uh, try to avoid absolutes and they say, well, um, you know, there's really no such thing as absolute right and absolute wrong. But um, you let somebody break in front of them in line at Walmart uh, and you will find out they believe in absolutes, <laughs> right? Uh, and everything's not quite as relative as they make it out to be. So there's this innate desire for justice that is hardwired into all of us. But especially for the Christians because of um, the understanding that God has given us uh, about the way things work and how, you know, the condition of the world that is the sinfulness of man and the fact that this whole world is affected by sin, by the fall, the fall of Adam and Eve, that we ourselves are sinners. Um, we long for things to be made right. Now, now there's a little bit of a paradox with us, right? Because on one hand, we long for justice. On the other hand, that's the last thing we want, right? I mean, in other words, if we were just going to be really hard-line about it, say, we demand justice, well, then you and I, and everybody else would perish eternally in hell. So for us, there's a little bit of a paradox and there's a combination. We desire justice in one sense. We want things to be, uh, wrongs to be righted in the world, the world to be uh, made right, sin to be dealt with. On the other hand, we want mercy. We want mercy for ourselves and hopefully we want it for others. In fact, I think that that's pretty much what drives evangelism. Is a desire for mercy for other people, the kind of mercy that we have experienced by coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, um, we get to the opening of the fifth seal in verse nine, and what John sees here is a group of people under the altar. Remember, he's he's seeing all of this in a vision, but but the uh, the, the setting is. The throne room of God, essentially, you've got the, the 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 temple, not the not the Old Testament temple on earth, built by Solomon, but the temple of God in heaven. And John is seeing all of these things in a vision, and he sees under the altar a group of people here that he identifies as martyrs. Look at verse nine. When when he opened the fifth seal, that is when Jesus opened the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls <coughs> of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness. They had born. So these are, these are saints. These are, um, we, we would say believers or Christians who, who have been killed for, John says, for the word of God and for their testimony, the witness that they had born. And they cried out with a loud voice, uh, and they, and they go on and we'll come back to this in a moment, but they pray to God for, uh, their blood to be avenged. On those who um, who were their persecutors. Now, what I what I always you, you hold me to this. You know, I always try to do this. I don't always accomplish it, but my my goal in preaching, right, is in, in, is to be text driven. I want to I want to I want the text driving the sermon, and and I'm just you know going where it leads. I, I am going to take a little sideline here, so I'm letting you know that. But I think it's an important one. Uh, that's why I'm why I'm pointing it out. Okay, these souls, John describes them as souls, have been slain, right? Verse 9, these are the souls of those who have been slain. In other words, these are people who have died. They were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here's kind of the the side note, but as I said, I think it's a very important one, so I don't want to pass over it without without mentioning it. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. Um, The Bible teaches us that... When you die, when you and I die, we live on in a conscious state. Now, there, there, the reason I'm pointing this out is because there are there are uh, people out there who teach um, that that is not the case. This is one of the passages that I would point to to say that this is the case. In other words, these souls under the altar are in what what we refer to as the intermediate state. That is, they're between physical death and the resurrection day. They have been killed. You know, they they were they were alive as people like you and I in the world, Christians. They were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so here they are pictured in heaven, but but the final day has not come yet. The final resurrection when when all um, when all are raised up, the unrighteous to condemnation and, and then the believers to uh, eternal blessing. That day has not approached yet, so, so we're in between. We're in between their physical death and the final resurrection day. That's the intermediate state. And notice here, they are in the presence of the Lord in a conscious state, okay? Okay? And this is strong evidence, I would say, to support that. Now, why would some people deny that? Well, because a lot of times in the New Testament, um, to refer to death, the Scripture uses the term "sleep," and I can give you several examples of that. Um, Acts thirteen thirty-six and thirty-seven. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So, so there um, Paul is describing the, the death of David. He says he fell asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 6. Paul says, Then he appeared, that is Jesus appeared, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He doesn't mean they dozed off. He means they died. Okay? So, so he's saying Christ appeared after his resurrection. Jesus appeared to five, over 500 people. Paul says now... Some of them are still alive to this day, but some of them have fallen asleep, meaning they've died. In that same chapter, First Corinthians 15, verse 18, Paul talking about uh, the return of, of Christ says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ... Um, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ... Uh, I'm sorry, he's, he's saying if there's no resurrection, they have perished. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That is... Hypothetically, if there's no resurrection, all those who have died in Christ have perished. But again, he uses the term uh, asleep to describe death. Again, the same chapter. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. And this is verse 51. 1 Corinthians 15:51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. All right? So what does he mean there? He's saying, well, when the Lord returns... Um, those who are alive at that time will not die. They will not go through physical death. They'll just be changed. He goes on to say in verse 52, changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. All right? So, um, some people die, but those who are, in fact, all of us will die unless Christ returns during our lifetime, but but those who are alive when he returns will not die. That is, they will not sleep, but they'll be changed. In verse... Um, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, he uses that terminology three times here. Again, in verse 14, he says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then one more in 2 Peter 3, 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. All right? So you can see where the idea comes from. People read those passages and, and they think, well, what the, what the Lord is describing there is an unconscious state. In other words, when you die, you slip into unconsciousness until the resurrection day, and then at that day, you're raised up, awakened once again. Well, as I noted earlier, I think that's, that's, that's wrong, and I think one of the, the passages that um, refutes that is what we just read in uh, Revelation chapter 6. Verse nine: These saints who have been killed are conscious and in the presence of the Lord. Let me just give you a couple other passages as as um, parallel to that. One is, um, well, I'll just give you the references here. But in Matthew seventeen three, Mark nine four, and Luke nine thirty. Those are, those are the uh, passages dealing with the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus was transfigured before the disciples. And you read those passages and you will find that Moses and Elijah appeared. <laughs> and they came and they talked with Jesus, right? They were, they were quite alive and, uh, and well, very well, you might say, uh, talking with Jesus about his departure, his exodus. Right. So, and then you look at Philippians one twenty-one. Paul says, "For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain." Now, I know he's not specifically giving a uh, here. Here's the way it's going to be in the after, in you know, after death here. But just the idea that he would say, "To die is gain," seems to me to insinuate that um, he's talking about a better state, right? For me to live is Christ; to die is gain. Now, that's confirmed. Just a couple verses down, Philippians one twenty-three, Paul says, I am hard-pressed between the two. My, talking about living and dying. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Notice how Paul thinks of death. Death, for Paul, was to depart and be with Christ. It wasn't to go to sleep, to slip into unconsciousness. It was to depart and be with Christ. And Paul says, that's far better than being here. And then again, in a passage you're familiar with, he just kind of mentions this in passing in 2 Corinthians 5.8. He says, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the, the Lord. Now, we, we, a lot of times we paraphrase that and say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But he, he's just saying that in, in passing here. I'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Okay? So, I I just want to point that out. What you've got in verse 9 are Christians who have been murdered, killed, because they were Christians. And they are not in an unconscious state. They are in the presence of the Lord in a fully conscious state. Now... It's a disembodied state. Notice, notice what what John sees here, and, and don't ask me how he sees this. I don't know, but what he sees here is the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for their testimony. All right, so they said so they don't have bodies because the resurrection has not occurred yet. So Christians in the in the intermediate state, brothers and sisters in the Lord that you and I know who have died and gone on, people like uh, Miss Scott, people like. Uh, You know, Brother Carl and Miss Carolyn, just go down the list. They do not have bodies at this point, physical bodies. The resurrection has not occurred. But they are present with the Lord in a conscious state. So, so on one hand... um, no more pain, right? No more. There's there's no more cancer, no more pain, no more sorrow, nothing like that. But but they have not yet received glorified bodies. So um, I know it, it's it's a little hard for us to imagine, but but you're talking about disembodied souls here. Now, when the resurrection occurs, then soul is is, um, is united with the new glorified resurrection body. Uh, which we shall inhabit throughout eternity. If I'm understanding Scripture correctly, all right. So I just want to point that out. This is death, physical death, means immediate presence of the Lord. Right? You leave this world, you're absent from the body, but you're present with the Lord, just like just like Paul says um, in Second Corinthians five eight. So that's what John is seeing here. Okay, now we can get, kind of get back on track here. What are, what are these souls doing here? Well, they're crying out, John says. He, when Jesus opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and their tes- and for the witness they had borne, literally for the testimony they had, the testimony they had. So, so they were, they're martyrs, that's why we call them martyrs. In fact, that word the term martyr comes from this word. Um, witness or testimony—that's that's the Greek word—and and it's been brought over into English, and and over the centuries, it has become um, used for those who are killed uh, for their faith, right? Christians, and it, not those who strap on bombs and, and go into a, a a crowded bus station or something like that, or on an airplane, fly an airplane into a building. That's not a martyr. A, a martyr is is someone who's you know not doing anybody harm, but he's killed he or she is killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. So these are martyrs and they were killed for the word of God. In other words, because they believe the word of God, because they proclaim the word of God, because they accept the gospel, love the gospel, and the testimony which they had. That's why they were put to death. Um you know, just on the surface, I mean, just just when you say that, I mean, just it just sounds hard to believe. But of course, we've you know we've heard of accounts of these things all of our lives, and we know them to be true. And then and then to, today it seems to be escalating. I don't know how many times I've heard. Um, the twentieth century, they say, more there were more martyrs in the twentieth century than all of the previous 19th century. And I'm talking about Christian martyrs, Christians killed for their faith. More in that 100-year period, the 20th century, than in all of the preceding 19 centuries. Well, at the rate we're going now, if the Lord tarries, 21st century is probably going to surpass the 20th century. At least it's really getting off to a... A big start, isn't it, in terms of that? So, is that something we should despair over? Because, look, let's face it, um, our lives are in danger. They are. And, and that's becoming more and more evident with every day that goes by. All right? So, should we despair over that? No. No. In fact, this is the whole reason. Again, right? We've brought it up many times. This is why the Lord gave us the book of Revelations, why the Lord gave us all of the the Bible, so that we would understand that all of these things are happening uh, ultimately for His own purposes, for His own glory. But He will not fail in bringing His children to final salvation, right? So whatever whatever we endure in this life, whatever we face, even, even if it means physical death, great reward awaits us in glory. That's why Jesus said in John 16, 33, you know, we've mentioned that the last couple of weeks, be of good cheer, right? He said, in the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. He's not denying evil. He's not denying bad circumstances. He doesn't say, you know, be of good cheer, because I'm going to make sure nothing bad happens to you. He doesn't say that. He says, be of good cheer, because I've conquered these things. He's, he's the one who emerges victorious, King of kings and Lord of lords. And if we're in Christ, we share in that victory. All right? So, they are martyrs, and they're crying out to God here. Interesting. See, they're, they're longing. That's what I was talking about earlier. They're longing for something. They're crying out for justice. And that's the whole thing here. You know, there's a, there's a cry for justice, for recompense, for, uh, for God to avenge their enemies, or bring vengeance upon their enemies. Look at um, verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? In other words, they're, they're persecutors. Those who have stood in opposition to God and stood in opposition to God's people, persecuting God's people. Now, I want to notice a couple of things here in this cry, which is really a prayer, right? I mean, they're, they're crying out to God, Lord, how long? I mean, they're, they're, they're calling out, praying to Him. Notice a couple of things here, how, how they refer to God. Look at verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord. The, the term there. Is is the uh, the word despot? You've heard the term despot. It's used several times in the New Testament. Not, I mean, not a whole lot. Probably probably five or six times, something like that. I didn't I didn't count them, but I mean, it's something like that. Um, but it 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 it's the idea of sovereignty. In this case, it's the idea of absolute sovereignty. Oh, and that's why it's translated sovereign Lord. Oh, sovereign Lord. In other words, they're acknowledging that God is in control of all things. I mean, they're coming out of tribulation having suffered even unto death. I mean, they, they gave up their lives for the gospel. They were killed. And they're understanding that God is in control of all that. They're understanding that, that God is in control of all things. So that's why they're asking, how how long till you avenge? They, they know that. Satan does not have the upper hand, right? They know who's in charge. They know where their hope is. In the Sovereign Lord. And they're longing for God to make all things right. O oh, Sovereign Lord, holy and true. And the way that it's phrased here is, is um, like, like it's giving two, uh, two attributes. You know, Sovereign Lord... And then holy and true. They Putting the holy and true together like, like two sides of a coin. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true. And this is how they view God. <laughs> as, as being sovereign over all things and as being holy and true. Well, what does holy mean? We've talked about that a lot of times. It means that He's other than, right? He's other than. He's not like us. Scripture says, he's, for example, he's not, he's not a man that he should lie. He, he doesn't lie. Which, the second part of that bears that out. He's true. He's pure. That is, there, there is no defilement in God. There's, there's not a single thing in the person of God that you can point to and say, well, that's wrong. Now, people do it, but they do it unjustly. That's wrong. That's evil. Or, or, or even boy god messed up there didn't he no he's he's holy he's pure he is he is without defilement not not a inkling of sin or error nowhere in his being he is light scripture says and in him there is no darkness at all not a bit of it no shadow of turning. He doesn't have to repent, Scripture says. Why? Because, because he's never done anything wrong. He's never made a mistake. To, to repent is to change, right? So he doesn't have to change his mind. Sometimes people ask, does God change his mind? Well, no. I mean, what, what would, would, he, would he change it for the worse? My goodness, no. Would he change it for the better? Well, no, because he's already perfect. So he, he doesn't change his mind. He doesn't make errors. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything wrong. He, he has never once, and you can say, say this about Jesus too, people don't like this, but He has never once apologized. <laughs> people hear something like that, and boy, they think, well, that's arrogant. Well, no, He's just, he just never done anything wrong. And He's never had to say to somebody, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Not be arrogant if you and I never apologized. But God's never done anything wrong. He's holy. He's not like us. He's other than. And He's true. Think about that. He's true. He's totally trustworthy. Absolutely trustworthy. Absolutely faithful. Whatever he says, you, you can take it to the bank, right? All the promises of God, Paul says, are in Christ, yes and amen. They all find their, their amen. They all find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And they all come to pass. All the promises of God are sure because God is true. In fact, it would be right to say that he is truth. I mean, he defines it. So think, so again, think of it this way. He, he rules, right? He's sovereign. He rules, and I like to say actively and absolutely. He's not just a figurehead. No, he, he actively rules and he rules absolutely. That is, there is, there is nothing out from under his dominion. There's nothing out of his jurisdiction. He rules over all. And He's good. He's pure. He's holy. He's not like us. He's just. He's pure. There's no evil whatsoever in Him. He is altogether good. In fact, you can say He is goodness. I think John Calvin said that in one place. He is not just good. He is goodness. He defines it. And you can say the same thing about truth. He is true and he is truth Jesus said i am the way the truth and the life john 14:6 so this is this is how they see god and you want, you know what this is how this is how we should view circumstances in in light of who god is anything that we face we should view in light of who god is god is God is sovereign. He rules. God is holy. He's pure. He's good. God is true. He's faithful. So we, we should view all circumstances in light of who God is. All injustices, and we do, we do experience injustices in this world in this life, in this world. View them in light of who God is. God is sovereign over all. So, I mean, nothing's slipping by that he doesn't, doesn't see or have a handle on. All right. So they're crying out and this is how they pray. Oh sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe. Beautiful picture of, of uh, being clothed with righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. They are each given a white robe and are told to rest a little longer. Isn't that good? Just 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 rest a little longer. Listen to what he says, what they're told. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been killed. Now, if that's not a testament to God's sovereignty, I don't know what is. There is an appointed number of martyrs. And until the last one has been killed, uh, this, this thing's not over. It's not winding up until the full number comes in. And you could say the same thing about uh, salvation in general. Jesus said, all that the Father has given me will come to me, right? So, until the last one comes, things are going to rock on just like they are. Wouldn't you like to know who the last one is? Well, that's none of our business, is it? But until the last one comes... Things are going to keep going. Bad things keep happening. People, good things keep happening. People being saved. There's an appointed number. God is sovereign. In verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? We're gonna we're gonna see these cycles as we move through um, the Book of Revelation. What, what a lot of people do with the Book of Revelation is they take the various visions and they try to they try to view them chronologically. This this happens and then this and then this as you move through the chapters and then this and then this and this and you get to the, finally you get to chapter 19 and Jesus returns in glory and chapter 20 21 we're all we're all you know glorified and taken into the uh, received into the eternal state <coughs> and the uh, and the uh, the Satan and and death and hell are cast into the lake of the fire lake of fire well. The view that I'm taking, and I have to unpack this as we go, but I, but I think um, what's what's really taking place through a lot of these chapters is a retelling of the same story. And it's what some call uh, progressive parallelism. So, so in other words, what you have is parallels of the same story being told in different ways, and so it's this cycle of, you know, salvation, you know, man and and uh, man in general standing up in opposition to God you got the struggle between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God as it plays out in this world and then and then God brings judgment and then as you go through each one of those retellings there's this little progression in in information that's given you know we're told a little bit more about this or a little bit more about that a little more detail and it's told in different ways so I'm saying all this to say this, as far as what we're looking at today. I, I mentioned last week that when we looked at the first um, first four seals, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, I, I said these seem to me to be things, events that, that just take place during the church age. In other words, for the last 2,000 years, and will continue to take place until Jesus returns, uh, the famine, the war, the death... The, the advancement of the gospel. This is what's going on in the church age. When you get to verse nine, you're still uh, you're still in that same period, but the focus is now on the souls of the martyrs in heaven, and they're crying out for recompense upon God's enemies. And you notice, as we just read, the answer comes back, "Well, you know, rest a little longer until the the full number of your fellow servants uh, are." who are to be killed like you were until they come in. So this is still during the church age. The time between Christ's first coming and His second coming. But we got a glimpse into heaven and these souls of the martyrs, you know, hearing what they are crying out before God. But now when you get to the sixth seal, that one seems to bring us right to the end. The last days of the last days, Right? The last days, in the New Testament, the last days is a way of referencing that same period between the first coming of Christ, or you could say between, between His death and resurrection, and His second coming. That's the last day. Sometimes people say, do you think we're in the last days? And I always tell them, I know we're in the last days. That's what the Bible says. The Bible clearly says that. We're definitely in the last days. Now, are we in the last of the last days? That's what they really want to know. And uh, that I can't tell you. Um... We may be out here today. I mean, it may all be over with today. Maybe I may not, you know, I'm trying to, uh, uh, to wrap this message up now. I may not get done with it. <laughs> Jesus may come back in the next few minutes. Or it may be 5,000 years from now. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But verse six uh, I'm sorry, the sixth seal is bringing us to the last of the last days. And, in fact, it's bringing us, uh, to the last of the last days and right up to the very end when God is pouring out His judgment on the earth. So, so it's, it's the answer to the cry. They say, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge? Well, then He opens the sixth seal and that judgment is being poured out. It's the last of the last days and judgment is being poured out on Those who dwell on the earth. That's a way of referencing those who have opposed God. See, our citizenship as Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. These are those who stand in opposition of God. Repeatedly referred to in Revelation as those who dwell on the earth. Alright, so the sixth seal is the outpouring of God's wrath on the world. And what is described here is... Cataclysmic cosmic events, right? I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. We talked about that several months back when we were going through Joel. Joel prophesied this very day. Uh, If you want to go back, I won't take the time to go there now. But Joel chapter 2, read Joel chapter 2 and you'll see this unfolding. Then you go to Acts chapter 2 and Peter says, This is that which was spoken by the prophet of Joel. Right? So, sun goes black, moon becomes like blood, stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig sheds its winter fruit. The sky, verse 14, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, see, this is, this is intended to be far and away... Uh, worse than, than anything we know. You know, we just had, a, what was it, an 8-point-something earthquake in Nepal, extremely devastating earthquake. Now, the way John is des- seeing these events and describing them, it, it, it far surpasses that, and it's intended to. Because all of, the, all of these things that we experience, you know, the tornadoes, earthquakes, hurricanes, I mean, they're, they're just a little foretaste. To what it's going to be like at the end. As horrible as they are. They're just a little foretaste. So what's it going to be like? Well, sun goes black, moon turns to blood, stars fall from the sky, heavens are rolled up like a scroll, every mountain and island was removed from its place. That is a shaking of the cosmos. A shaking of the universe. Because the time has come for judgment. And men, just as Jesus said, men's hearts will fail them for fear. Verse 15, they are stricken with fear. And it doesn't matter their social status or their age. Verse 15, then the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us. I mean, it's, it's so horrific, so bad, that they're begging to die. And we'll find out later in the book that death eludes them. You say, Well, how is that possible? I'm, some intervention of God. They want to die. They can't die. Fall on us. Hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne. Remember, remember that? What was the main focus in chapter 4? The one who is seated on the throne, right? And John is presenting Him as, as the sovereign God over all. And now He's coming in judgment. So they're in fear of the one who is seated on the throne and of the Lamb. What a picture that is. I mean, when was the last time you feared a lamb? When, when was the last time you came across a lamb and feared for your life? But this lamb has great wrath that is going to be unleashed in the last of the last days. Because this Lamb is Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who came as a Lamb the first time and was led to the slaughter. But He's coming back as triumphant conqueror. King of kings and Lord of lords. So men are stricken with fear. Why? Because of Him who is seated on the throne and because of the wrath of the Lamb. For, here's the explanation, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Well, let me try to answer that real quick and we'll be done. In and of ourselves, Nobody can stand on that day. In other words, you and I cannot endure it. The wrath of Him who is seated on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb, you and I cannot endure it. Remember, Jesus said in one place, whoever falls on this stone, and He was talking about Himself, Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but if the stone falls on you, you'll be crushed to powder. You can't stand. Joel says that again. Joel chapter 2, he he makes that point. No one can stand on that day. You cannot face the wrath of God on your own and endure it. You will perish, you will be crushed, ground to powder. So why do these martyrs long for that day? The only ones who can stand, just as Jesus said, those who fall on this stone will be broken. The only ones who can stand will be those who have been broken, who have been brought into submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you know that He's already paid the price for your sins in His death at Calvary, if you know that you're His and He's yours, and if you know that you will stand before God not trusting in your own righteousness, you know, hoping that you've done enough good things to get by, or that hoping that God will overlook your sin. But if you stand before Him trusting in the righteousness of Jesus, the payment He made for us, that is the only way you will be able to stand on that day. That's the only way you can look for that day with longing instead of with terror. And anybody that is not in Christ... you, I, whoever it is. Anybody that is not in Christ has has reason to be terrified, let me tell you. So I close this morning just with with an invitation and a plea. Here's the invitation. Jesus bids all who will hear come. 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 He he took the wrath of God upon himself so that you and I don't have to face it. So come. Come to Christ. Submit to him. Know him. Say, how do I how do I, how do I know him? How do I get to know him? You, right here. He, he gave us his word so that we could know him. Trust, trust him. Come to Christ. And here's here's the plea. I mean, if you haven't done that, do it today. As Paul says in Corinthians, we, we, we beg you, we, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you stand before God on your own merit, you will perish. In fact, the wrath of God, whether you know it or not, is on you now. And the day is coming when it will be fully manifest. So be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gift of God. He has provided a way through His Son, through the death, life and death of His Son so that you and I don't have to face His wrath. Would you stand, please? God's justice for you and I was either meted out on Jesus Christ at Calvary or it will be meted out to us through eternity. It's one or the other. We'll pray and we'll dismiss.
0: Brother Freddie, would you mind leading us in a word of prayer?